Welcome to our special series on everyday whiteness, the uncomfortable conversations on well-meaning white people. This podcast is primarily for white listeners. It's also a podcast for all listeners who unconsciously operate through a lens of whiteness, regardless of the body that you inhabit. It's not meant to shame you for being white or thinking white, but rather to support you in having more awareness of the impact of your whiteness as a cultural code of conditioning. My name is Guru Nishan. I stand committed to the ongoing dismantling of internalized whiteness within myself, as well as to curating uncomfortable conversations on predators and predatory patterns in business, community, and culture. While this is a lifelong process of dismantling, I offer six intentions for this podcast, which I read at the beginning of every episode. Number one, to illuminate all of the ways that whiteness is built into our everyday lives, systems, and structures in the USA and worldwide, and to pierce the unconscious white operating system. Number two, to give voice to the unheard, unseen, and unfelt experiences well-known and all too common among Black, Indigenous people, and other people of culture. Number three, to make visible what is often rendered invisible in community and culture. Number four, to name microaggressions and other common whiteness behaviors, thinking patterns, and assumptions embedded into culture and society. Number five, to support an increase in white awareness, as well as the active dismantling of white idolatry through personal inquiry of present day and historical predatory whiteness. And number six, to help you do the hard yet necessary work of dismantling racialized trauma within your body and to offer you a chance to look into your own marrow. I want to welcome our guest for today's podcast. Her name is Kathy Garland. She's a storyteller, memoirist, and essayist who uses personal essays and memoir to demarginalize women's experiences with an intent to highlight and humanize specific issues. Her work can be found in various anthologies, as well as her personal blog, quoted.wordpress.com. Follow her on Instagram and Twitter at K.E. Garland. You can look in the show notes for the links. Well, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for being here, Kathy. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's uh, just in simply noticing you online and following each other that um, I witnessed you and, and asked you to be here. And it was just a bit of an exchange in terms of the writings you have to share. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of the everyday whiteness and the conversation on well-meaning white people at all. Thank you for having me. Um, I think it's important. And I think it's important the way that you um, allow Black people and people of color to enter space um, in ways that they want to and value, as opposed to it being an expectation of just being alive, I suppose. Right. And just inhabiting <laughs> your body. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and and yes, it's it's really about trying to craft space um, that that allows voices to be um, heard 
not that they haven't been spoken all for a long time. It's just right. creating new opportunities to to re-say the same things in new spaces. So um, your writings, um, I, I got to share a little bit on that. And, and usually I'll ask a, a, a guest, what does everyday, um, everyday whiteness or what does well-meaning white person even mean to you when you hear that? Yeah, um, I think when I hear that, I I think of something that I've noticed throughout my lifetime, and I don't want it to sound like a judgment, although it probably will be. Um, what I've found, especially working in academia, is that liberal white people are the worst, in quotes, <laughs> and it is because they embody the concept of a well-meaning white person. Um, that persona tends to be exactly what well-meaning white person means. Um, they don't want to be perceived as racist. They're usually educated. And because they have education and have, you know, engaged with concepts and um, readings, they kind of set themselves apart and then enact this well-meaning white person uh, persona, I think. <laughs> so that's mm -hmm. the first thing I think of, yeah. Yeah, the, the heaviness of the educated, like studied in cultural anthropology and traveled to remote exotic places and a collector yeah. of art and yeah. this, it, it, the gravity of it is heavy to see for me, yeah. like, to witness and be like, Wow, it's so yeah. much more violent because it's not out in the open for what it is. Right. Yeah. And also because it's always in like just juxtaposition to a racist white person, which, mm. you know, has a whole nother connotation to it. And I and I would think, for example, if I were a white person, I wouldn't want to identify as a racist white person either. But then it's that so it's like so blatantly trying not to that you know kind of misses the mark sometimes <laughs> yes that niceness that right the hyper quote of well-meaning right and the juxtaposition of the opposite that that yeah. obvious hatred right right which really speaks to whiteness itself right like white people um in this american society and in, in the united states tend to only have two options, right? You, either you're like some racist white Southerner or you're not. Um, and it kind of ignores the continuum of who a person can be. So, yeah. Mm, well said. Yeah. Well said. Because it's not the human experience. We're right. So much more complex. A range, absolutely. Yes, we are so much more <laughs> of that range. Yeah. Well, I, I know that in our short exchange, you had a suggestion to share uh, your own writings, and I thought that was such sure. a beautiful idea. Um, so why don't you set up for listeners what, what this piece is? And Okay. Yeah. Okay. So this that I am going to read is an essay that I wrote for um, a special edition of the Chicken Soup for the Soul franchise, if your uh, readers or listeners are familiar with that. Um and it's important for me to say that this was a special edition because it came out of the George Floyd murder um, where people were scrambling 
And I, I guess I shouldn't be afraid to say white people were scrambling right. to find ways to do exactly Give us what the language. Just, right? yes. Say, <laughs> it, say just, it like it is. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly what we talked about is what this book ended up being. And so just a little backstory for Chicken Soup for the Soul. They only choose 101 stories um, for any of their um anthologies. And so this one is 101 stories only from Black women. And it's called I'm Speaking Now, Black Women Share Their Truth in 101 Stories of Love, Courage, and Hope. Um, Amy Newmark is the typical editor, the usual editor for the series, but she added um, a Black woman editor with her. So she has a co-editor, Renee Clark. I also have to say before I read and and kind of give you the backstory of the piece, um, I was a part of a book reading with three other authors from the book, and we'd all submitted to Chicken Soup for the Soul before and were never um, accepted. And all of us were accepted for this one. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's kind of not only is the topic that I'm I'm going to read to you um, important, but even this idea that we have to all be in one book to tell this one story, type of story, um, so that we can be heard is also an issue. So it kind of like shows this double thing, right? The publication, like how white white privilege is everywhere. So even with publications, it's an issue. What I'm going to talk about is with academia, it's an issue. And so it ends up showing, ended up showing like two different spaces. Uh, where the same issue is an issue. <laughs> yeah, we're going to pause on this. Let's just really <laughs> let this land. Let it out, yeah. Yeah, let this land. Um, I, I want you to speak to what the chicken soul for this, the chicken soup for the soul franchise is. Like it's a self-help, yeah. it's a sell, it's a major self-help brand by, by whom? Um, um, I've, I've read it a long time ago. Yeah, it's I can't think of the guy's name, so maybe you know post production, or you can Google it now. But I think there was a guy who started it. But the editor is a white woman, Amy Newmark. But I, I think, and when you look up the guy's name, it's gonna, I think you'll know who who he is. Or yeah, you've it's heard so of him. popular in the in very the, popular. Um, they produce the self help world. They publish books like every month um on different topics and it is considered self-help um a little christian leaning um though i think they try to present more like spirituality now yeah okay jack canfield and mark canfield thank you i really needed to name this because they're major white men in the self-help and self spiritual self-help psychosomatic kind of um personal and and I'm familiar with it from you know years of self-help myself yeah. over the decades um so chicken soup for the soul is like this major self-help brand by Jack Canfield and Jack uh, Canfield Victor, yes and Mark Victor Hansen and for what I'm hearing you say <laughs> is that throughout time right so the soul uh, that this franchise his book gets big and then it turns into a franchise where they're now supporting other authors so they're and setting quotes. up quote right supporting and so what you're presencing is how all three uh, or other of the authors that you got to connect with prior, you know, um, Mm -hmm. with this publication um, had all submitted work prior, but the only way that you get recognized as black as writers is by being black women and tokenized for this particular 
addition, which happened to come around the time of George Floyd, when all brands are trying to be like, oh gosh, we're not inclusive. Let's do something. Yeah. So the whole preface of well-meaning is in 2020 and was witnessing how brands are doing the very thing that now the piece you're about to read was a part of. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And this was 2021. They literally did the call because like you said, and and what I want to emphasize is that they published books literally monthly. This is not your like normal publication house, right? They are publishing Mm. their books monthly on a monthly basis. And it's about all different topics. And they're uplifting authors is what you're trying to say monthly. They're doing that part of their mission is that they have a a publishing agency where they're uplifting other authors to bring them into the domain of what the whole brand of Chicken Soup for the Soul is really all about. And yeah, wow. (laughs) I kind of have like, kind of like, like tangy in my mouth, you know, dry and tangy. And it's so bittersweet. Um, I'm reading... Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart right now. And I don't know if you've read that, but she like outlines these concepts, right? And bittersweet is one of them. And that's kind of how I felt. Like I was so excited, you know, because you're supposed to be so excited, right? You only, they only choose 101 authors. So that's Mm -hmm. special. And then when I thought about it, I was like, oh, but why this one? Why didn't you pick the one where I talked about how my dog died because they do a thing on dogs all the time I was like that was a pretty good one I wonder how come they didn't choose that one that is pretty universal or whatever else I submitted you know so yeah it was, it's not just you you're pointing out that the other authors had also oh, submitted for sure. work and so yeah to, to so to I know see- it's not just yeah, yeah, that it's not just a personal thing, which is so easy to take personal. Well, well yeah. this writing versus that writing. And then you nope. realize, no, this is this is a much. And as this an organization, for them to say they're uplifting writers, what would be more accurate is they're uplifting white writers. Because Absolutely. then obviously it, it, when they realize, let's do a special edition uplifting Black women, they have to do a special book in which you get included as opposed to changing their whole just including atmosphere, it, right? just including black people right? And, right and so like you said you're pointing out that she brought a black woman on but not for any other edition right just for right. this and yeah. it's like why not have a um an inclusive equitable practice. viewpoint practice yeah. as a regular practice as opposed yeah. to because that's hard that's where the work is, right? That's the real work, right? Yes. <laughs> well, you bring you bring up Brene Brown, and I, I've I've witnessed um, Black women's conversations around the um, uh, unrelatability of that, and mm-hmm. I found that interesting too. Because as much as I love her work on one mm-hmm. level in terms of mapping out um, webs of exploring our vulnerability and mm-hmm. kind of the textures of that, um, what I read around that, and I'm curious your point of view is um that it wasn't rooted that, that black women didn't feel like it was actually rooted in an experience that related to them because it it was um, a white woman's experience so it didn't really it's it's using the language but it's not actually rooted in the lived yeah. experience of these of these real experiences of breaking yeah. apart yeah I'm not sure. Like, so my initial response is sometimes we have to, well, let me back up. I'm a little different than I think most people. And this is just through self-awareness that I've 
come to understand this. So every time I read something, I'm always like, oh, how does this apply to me? So even like the bittersweetness. So I'm reading these concepts and I'm like, oh, okay. Was there a time when I could relate to bitter something being, being bittersweet? Is there a time when I can relate to, you know, she like separates the sympathy versus empathy thing. And I was a little triggered because she, and I'm kind of going around the block, but I'll come back. <laughs> but she, because she, she says like saying something like, um, oh, I feel so bad for you is not empathy. It's more sympathy and it's distancing. Well, it's something that I say all the time. And when I read that, I was like, oh, I had to stop and say to myself, so is this bad? Was I a bad person? Is this in, aligned with my experience, et cetera, et cetera. My point being, to answer your question, I think I understand Black women saying it's not accessible, maybe, um, and also the same way that there's this criticism of feminism with yes. between white women and Black women. But ultimately, I what I tend to do is kind of like say, does this apply to me? And how does this apply to me? Because how could it not apply to me if I'm a human being yes. in this world? Um, it might not apply in the way that Brene Brown has lived her life. It can't. But then I feel like that's almost all of us, right? Like that's the point of kind of self-reflecting. So I don't know. I don't have that criticism. I love Brene Brown. <laughs> I yeah, think I she appreciate is, that. Yeah, I totally I think she's totally accessible if you are willing to kind of like Ayala Van Sant says, do the work. If you're willing to kind of like self-reflect, think about it, trash what doesn't apply to you, but, but, you know, I don't know, mm -hmm. a 200 page book. Yeah. You have to something. <laughs> That's my experience. It's like right. you have to deconstruct worldviews that have been right. solidified as normal and realize, wow, that, that isn't, that isn't true. And yet I'm also right. dependent on that sense of cell. And so you start exactly solving and, and so it's asking different questions I really hear the process that's here. what I think yeah yeah like you can't just dismiss it just because the person didn't say doesn't have like some overt racist um experience or even some microaggression type experience like just she's not gonna have that because she's white but she's yeah. gonna have some other knowledge and experience that you can apply to your life that's what I think yeah yeah, I appreciate your perspective. Um, going back to, so the whole chicken soup of the soul, I really just want to point out and really what we're highlighting is sure. that within self-development spaces, within spiritual spaces, within a lot of spaces, people are saying, brands are saying, we serve blank people. We help women with their sexuality. We help blah, blah, blah. And what we don't see and hear often is that really we help white women do pretty else. much we help yeah. black what we help white men we help so we help authors yeah. we help white authors right we help you know yeah and and really yeah. even when you say that right I've I've often thought and wondered why is it that we're talking about why was this only um for black women because black men are right there are a lot of black male writers and so even if we, they were trying to be inclusive of the Black experience, I just wonder why it was so limited. It still was limited just to women. 
And is that all they did? There weren't more special series of black men writers and other writers. No, Are there other special series is, or is that the I only haven't one? I haven't seen one. I've only seen a black woman one. And in fact, this is the second one someone said. Um they said they did one in the 70s. <laughs> oh Lord. Okay, 70s and <laughs> another 50 year 50 year memorial. <laughs> Let's do another one in 50 years. Right. That's yeah. token well-meaning whiteness. Isn't it? That's just <laughs> like the perfect example. It really is. I don't even um, need to read because, yeah, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> your, your actual writings bring us to a whole nother topic of academia yeah. as, as you spoke yeah. to. But, you know, feeling the gravity of that around how many spaces you navigate that, you know, pompously promote themselves as serving all people mm -hmm. um, because in their own mind of 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 the structures of their own ideologies and ways of seeing the world leads them to believe they're serving all people but they don't see all the ways they're not serving all people right and right. they'll do things like this and, and that's not an isolated incident you know this is one example of a self-help group so to speak a major franchise that represents what it means to be able to do anything, to get your right. words out to the world, <laughs> you know, and it's when you're speaking this like rhetoric of um, what your soul can do, yeah. you know, what's on the inside yeah. of you that's trying to come out, kind of the right. basis of personal development is that if it's, if it's in you, it's meant to come out of you and, right. and we're here to uplift that and support that. And so, yeah. 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 And I mean, to think about a franchise, like we, I just said the seventies. So that's 50 years of, of rhetoric of empty rhetoric. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's just, it's, yeah, it's just got to be so normalized for you. Yeah. Just kind of like, uh, but then here yeah. it is again. Um, and you're a part of it still. And those inter, yeah. inter questions still go on. Like how come this, you know, it takes, I don't know, as a trauma survivor, I can't get over what I'm seeing in like yeah. you come together with other black women now and realize, oh, you submitted other writings too. Oh, me too. Right. You realize that there's like a collective gaslighting that's yeah. happening and, yeah. and things you've taken personal. It's about like giving it back. It's like, oh my God, this is so systemic. Here it is again. Yeah. Here yeah. it is again. Yeah. 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 Big so <laughs> leading us to, okay, how do you not participate? Because as, as a human, that's just mm. going to be like, I'm going to do the best you can, you know, like I'm going right. to still submit my writing. So it's like, here you are as a part of this black woman space. All right. I'm going to yeah. still do that. And, and to me, that's, that's the overcomer spirit. And it's kind of starting to name like, no, you're not, you know, this is, this uh, is what it is. So what ended up happening and I'll have to so before I read, um, I'll tell you that after this, and I'm no longer, so this particular essay is about me being at a specific level in academia at a research institution eventually. Um, after that, I'm no longer there. But after that, I'm writing about this experience and sharing this information. And I remember telling an Indian woman in a reading, um, well, actually I said it all to everyone. And I said, I'm no longer interested in proving myself in white spaces. And I saw her face when I said that. She was like, I don't know, it's just 
a, a combination of surprise, appalled, and kind of like, okay. So afterwards, she asked me, she repeats word for word what I say. Well, I heard you say that you're no longer interested in, you know, um, whatever in white spaces. And, and so she was like, I just want to encourage you. Yeah, I just want to encourage you not to be that way. And I was like, oh, baby. Mm. <laughs> I'm so sorry for you because I think what happened was she, I'm sure she has some experiences um, that made her think about that. And all she could think to do was to kind of encourage me to push me back into that role. Yes. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. And so when this call came out, so, but I'm faced with this all the time, right? This call is specifically for black women. So I have to make a decision. Mm. And they do pay. I'll say that they pay like two hundred dollars. It's not like enough to you know, but they pay you. You get published. I mean, I'm able to put it on my Vita. People respect the, this franchise, right? So I have to make a decision: Am I gonna die on this sword, <laughs> or and is this proving myself in white spaces? Like I'm, you know, it's all these things you have to think about as a black person. Um, and so I had to make a decision. Yeah, I want to be published and these people are well known and it's going to probably mean something to somebody and get me somewhere later. Mm. But you do have to go through all of that. So I don't even feel like it was like, it, it was just a lot. It's a lot just to even for me to have even submitted. Yes. Yeah. To even want to choose to exchange energy in this space. Do I even want right. to be a part of it? Is this going to be right. worth it in the end? And result? that's the question. Right. Right. Yeah. So had I not done this, you know, how would I feel? And then also it's been really helpful to, to other people. So a lot of times you have to like step outside yourself too. Right. And not like make everything so personal. Yeah. Even though it kind of is. <laughs> and that it's both. Right. And it's like, a right. Twisted. Both it's and. distorted yeah. and it's distorted yeah. and it's convoluted. And the answer often is distorted and convoluted. It's not right. this one dimensional line. It's, yep. it's a twist. Um, so I just really appreciate your honesty in that and the process yeah. of that inner reconcile, you know, I call that like the we're reconciling yeah the distortion, you know, when we come up against these questions, right. Yeah, and and yeah. what I, when you said, I'm no, declaring, I'm no longer interested in proving myself in white spaces. Yeah. The, 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 the declaration of that. And then to, 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 to speak to an, a, a, a woman body of culture, an Indian woman that has mm. a whole lived experience of what it means to prove, prove themselves yeah. in, in white spaces. Um, I just want to speak out to out loud to listeners that Resma Menicum and his work of somatic abolitionism um, really speaks to this and the bodies of culture of being in a black body of culture and a white body of culture mm -hmm. or a white body or a body of culture of any other culture and separating them so that we can really um, properly socially identify and yes. that we have all these ways of of self-identification and, and what it really means to hear you say, to feel and declare in life. I'm no longer interested in proving myself in white space. It's so potent. Yeah. Like it's, it grounds yeah. my system to hear it. Like I can feel it. In, it's yeah. A and when we, 
also add in, I just want to add this in, Indians are actually considered white in this country. A lot of people don't realize that. Um, and I know that it benefits Indians to be perceived as white and to be able to check that box. And so I'm also imagining everything that goes, that was going on in this lady's, like, I wish I could describe it so clearly. It was just all over her face. Um, because, you know, just as a construct, she's a brown woman, right? Um, but something there has helped her to not identify as being brown or to help her to participate in different ways that she's maybe had to or been forced to, whatever. Yeah, I think it's all into, important. We get into Brahmin, Brahm, Brahminical caste hierarchy, right. dominator systems. Yeah. We get into Indian culture as well. And, and that's a very Absolutely. complex level of Absolutely. Trauma, trauma caste. Um, very similar to the racial hierarchy um, and it's it's detrimental to the to the human spirit so it's it's really potent what you're what you're speaking to and when you say that Indians are considered white do you mean more from like a social political point of view of like when 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 uh, immigration and the the status of what one gets to check on boxes um yeah in terms of uh in terms of checking those boxes they they get to check the white box yeah i think that the the study here is is around the the all of the benefits that came from the political uh yeah movement that black people of the civil rights movement of the 60s it opened yeah. up an immigration space that really opened the doors for a lot of indian immigration in mm-hmm. the 60s and 70s and so this is something for future study if you're wondering what we're speaking to that you can do some research on um and then i would also say the the book trauma of caste um by yeah. Henry um sundara sundarajan uh, speaks to the trauma of caste and the and, and the complexity of of brahminical mm-hmm. hierarchy and abuse um, of the caste system, and how similar that is in the racial hierarchy of things. And, and absolutely, yeah. So yeah, this whole not proving yourself. Coming back to your lived experience of this, it speaks to the writing you're about to share. So I'll just let you where you want to go. <laughs> Obviously, okay. I know where you're going with this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the essay that I wrote is called Good Enough. Um, and I'm in, maybe I should, a little bit about me um, in terms of how I make money to pay my bills. I have three degrees in education, a bachelor's, a master's, a PhD. Um, I, so I'm a teacher by trade and grew into being a professor of education. Um, And so all of this is really important in terms of what the content of this is about, but it's called Good Enough. Um, I think I'm gonna go ahead and just read. I'm gonna pause you and just kind of let you feel the accolades of, I wanna feel the accolades of your your (laughs) academic achievements. Thank you. And what it really means to be a professor and that you're teaching others in a academic professor Uh, capacity yes yes I am I am yeah brilliant thank you (laughs) and um I just know what it's like to be on the other end of that and to be receiving from professors and so that's what makes a a good university right is classes of 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 people like you that are studying and researching and asking questions and doing work on themselves to to bring better um yeah 
yeah, just trying to improve the world a little bit in my little space. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you. Okay, um, so good enough. And if you hear, I don't, if you hear pages turning, that's me. Um, I'm also one-handed. I just had a surgery on my rotator cuff, so I'm doing everything with what, one hand. That's what the sling but is, I, okay. oh, That's what you see here. Yes. Yeah. So I'm in recovery. Um, but okay, the name of this is good enough. And here we go. Um, growing up, I'd always been told that I had to be twice as good as white people to be seen as just as good. This was the rule, simply because I was a Black girl. However, I attended a diverse elementary and high school for gifted and talented students in Chicago, and this never proved true. Each of us was judged on our own merits. As I ventured through undergrad in Michigan, I still didn't witness that unfair treatment I'd heard about. I was surrounded by white people and hadn't met any slackers who achieved greatness by doing half as much as I had. We worked hard and our productivity and accomplishments seemed to equal the effort we put into them. Studying through the night meant success like A's and B's. Doing less resulted in attaining less such as probation for poor grades. This continued with the graduate work I did at a predominantly white institution in the South and ultimately with my doctorate at a university with similar demographics. It seemed like that truism about needing to work twice as hard was false. It must have been a message passed on during the pre-civil rights movement when my grandmother had to prove herself worthy even in a menial desk job. Perhaps it was an outdated concept that ended in the 1960s when my father's all-city athleticism was overshadowed by underqualified white men chosen to play with the Chicago Bears. Maybe it died in the 70s with my aunt's affirmative action admission to a university. My ancestors had paved the way. Family stories were now folklore. I believed everyone around me worked just as hard and we were on equal footing. But the truth was revealed when I sought my dream job at a research university in 2012. He was a charismatic, bearded, white male whose over six foot stature commanded attention every time he entered the room. I'd applied for his job three times, even though I was more qualified because I'd been an assistant professor somewhere else for two years. And even though he didn't have the specific type of doctorate they'd asked for, the department hired him for the tenure track position. The following year, I was hired as a visiting professor. Our different titles meant he ranked higher, had a permanent position, and made about $12,000 more than I did. He was a talker, the kind who has a story for every situation. The guy who's like, yeah, that reminds me of the time when he was perfect in every way, except he didn't know what he was doing. And as it turned out, he had a story for that as well. He told the program coordinator and me about his experiences one day as the three of us met in her tiny square office. So the professor kept talking about some theory that he thought I should know, he started. <laughs> the program, program coordinator sat in her brown leather chair, glancing every so often at her monitor, then up at him and back to me. And you know, I had no idea what he was talking about. I just nodded along and you know, I was just faking it till I made it, he laughed. The program coordinator looked at me and offered an eye roll. You know, that's how I got through, he said. I didn't know. I had never met anyone like him in the 12 post-secondary years I'd spent working hard to attain all things academic. 
I had no idea what he meant when he said he faked it till he made it. Did he mean he faked it to where we stood side by side? Surely that couldn't be true. It wasn't until the following semester when he had to teach methodology for a British literature course that the curtain of my naivete was raised. He knocked on my door. Got a minute, he asked. Sure. He pulled up a chair. Even sitting down, we weren't equal. I had to look up at him. How do you teach this, he asked. Although I hated the wordiness of British literature, I still remembered memorizing and reciting the first 14 lines of Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales for an undergrad assignment. I'd read and analyzed at least six of Shakespeare's tragedies and comedies in another course and written about how the Bronte sisters presented women in their novels. Later, I taught what I'd learned to board high school students. He didn't have this background. He had a PhD just like me. However, he wanted me to cram four years of undergrad, eight years of grad school, and 10 years of teaching into 30 minutes so he could do the job for which he'd been hired, the one for which I couldn't secure an interview. So I explained it to him. <laughs> that semester, we shared the same students who often bragged about completing his assignments. They researched authors via Google and relied on Spark Notes per his directions. I seethed with resentment for several months. Up until that moment, I'd only studied systemic racism and structural inequality. Living it was different. It was hard. White privilege and patriarchy were more than theories and hashtags. The two merged and manifested into a living, breathing man who sat two doors down the hall and made more money than I while knowing far less. That year, the department offered me a tenure track position after they saw what a, quote, hard worker I was. And after the only tenured African-American woman in the department happened to die from cardiac failure, she ironically was an affirmative action hire in the late 80s. I accepted the position. However, I only remained two more years. I traded that job for one at a community college. Every semester, I wonder if leaving was a big mistake. Did I squander my giftedness for comfort? Each time I arrive at the same conclusion. Although my family tried to prepare me, being twice as knowledgeable just to work alongside a less than capable white male was too much for me to ignore. Every time I arrived on campus, I felt as if a dose of 21st century racism slapped me in the face and the sting of it was too much to endure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And even rereading it, like those, some parts are so ridiculous. They're laughable now because <laughs> I really, in the moment was, you know how you're kind of like, is this real? Like this can't be real. Oh, is this it is actually real. happening. <laughs> yeah. Is he actually like, oh. saying what he's saying and, oh. and the normalcy of it? Yeah. Um, I could hearing it for the second time so much went through me differently than when I read it. Yeah. And having the backstory of the of knowing the setup is also very mm -hmm. interesting for me. Mm -hmm. But your words, you know, the 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 visceral feeling of just of of thinking that what you had been prepared for from your family was was kind of a thing of the past and thing had moved yeah. on and then you had this kind of real life experience of something that had only been this heady intellectual concept right yeah because I'm also in that generation uh, my grandmother who's 96 we've talked about this before 
how I feel like um, she taught her children about racism from a certain perspective, right? As only a 96 year old would have. And even my parents to some extent, so they like, you know, are however old during the civil rights movement and all that kind of stuff. But then by the time I come along, it's always spoken about kind of like, that's how things were, right? And also kind of that's how things are, but then the world is a little different. I don't know how to explain it. Kind of like people thinking that Obama got um, elected and now we're post-racial. I think that idea of post-racial has been around even before him. Mm -hmm. So... I think that it's been around as a coping mechanism, right? Yeah. And since integration even and 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 how right. so much kind of got brushed under the rug as if it was better because right. now this happens. And so a certain right. level of teaching didn't pass on to the next generation. It was just silence. Right. Right. Like this is like, yeah, kind of like we've made it now a little bit. And Mm -hmm. especially I'm glad you mentioned integration because growing up in Chicago, one of the ways to integrate schools was to have a magnet program, which is what I went through. Mm. Um, So I didn't, I didn't attend schools in neighborhoods which by and large Chicago is still segregated. It's like one of the most segregated cities in the country. But aside from living around all Black people, my educational experience wasn't like that at all. So I didn't even have the experience to go with like whatever they're trying to tell me reality is. Yeah. Mm. So going to the magnet programs meant that you were busing to schools out in the suburbs? Um, no, in the city. So in, in Chicago, city. yeah, they have magnet schools in different parts of the city. And yeah. so at my particular one, I went to Whitney Young. Um, ironically, the so the same school that Michelle Obama talks about, that's the school I went to. Um, but we came from all over the city. And that was kind of the point, was to bring all these different people from the city to this one spot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I'm finding interesting about just what you've presenced is the um, how generationally there were just certain things that got passed down about what to watch out for racially as a child from a parent to a child. Right. And how some people, some families, obviously not all black people or all, you know, brown bodies of culture. um, Some kind of was like, oh, that's the thing of the past. Get your education all good. Right. And just kind of like, so for some, that's how it got passed down. Only for the systemic nature of it to to reveal itself very right later. Yeah, and then possibly because then I was in the, I moved to the south, right, which is different. Oh, my apologies, um, which is different than living in the Midwest, like completely different, even in the time period that I'm talking about, like the, you know, this is like 2012. Yeah. Um, the South is different <laughs> still. So that's, that's also part of it. I wasn't groomed, if that's the right word, or raised to even understand what it means to be a Black person in the South, because oh, it's very different. Yeah. And that's yeah. where your schooling was? Like that's where this incident was, was in the South? Yeah, that's where the, um, with the professor and all. Yeah, I'm here in Florida, so I can say it. Yeah. Got it, got it. Okay. And I know saying I'm in Florida in 2023 also probably. <laughs> right. 
means something different too, but it means exactly whatever you think. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. As an educator yeah. in that state right now. Yeah. It's right. You know, when I, when I think about and, and witness, you know, that the gravity of that reality, right. The, uh, yeah. the, the censuring of books and silencing, you know, it, it's not a new practice. Obviously right. we got limited information in public schools because right. there had already been plenty of censure. I don't know what they called it then. They didn't call it CRT. They called it something right. else. But right. if we look at these, these, um, the, the political atmosphere, the social, political, mm-hmm. civic atmosphere of the forties and fifties and then the 60s, 50s, 60s and 70s. Right. And we start to really see the patterns at play. It's a part of why I, these conversations illuminate predatory patterns because they're right. not actually new, right? They're actually right. like formulas at play. Yeah, it's purposeful. Yeah. It's very yeah. intentional. And so hearing this man in the story of your writing, you know, basically on an off guard moment, just kind of sharing the, <laughs> let me just share with you like what yeah, it means to how make, I got here. make it. Yeah. yeah. Let me show you my worldview yeah. and how, how juxtaposition the worldview, like you're literally in your mind and then the other woman side-eyeing with you. Yeah. Um, it may, what occurred. Yeah. No, I was going to say, and she's a white woman, right? So she's kind of in between it, like I couldn't, I don't write fiction. And I, I was thinking, even if I was a fiction writer, I couldn't create three more um, perfect characters, right? Of a story. Because she's literally in between us. She understands exactly what he's saying, of course. But she also understands why I'm looking like, what? <laughs> yes. Are you really saying what you're saying out loud? Yeah, yeah. And she knows that, yeah, girl, he's saying what he's saying because that's what happened. And also because she hired him. She's part of the hiring process. So she knew full well that he didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. So it was the whole, it was, yeah, it was kind of like the perfect moment. It really is. And it highlights here so much of, um, the white feminist movement around how white women will know what is happening because he's a white male mm-hmm. and and so she knows kind of that whole scene and and the subjugation experience of of being within that dynamic and yet that same dynamic happens with white women to black women like we're just turning right. around and subjugating using that same energy right. in the power dynamic but now we're in the power position right and so i will say she is one of the most helpful white women I've ever met. Um, and I know that she, because we had many conversations around this and because she, it was so clear how little he knew and how much I knew. And she even said at one point that she told the director, well, I wish we would have hired Kathy and not this person, um, especially after she got to know me. Um, and so after she realized kind of like the, this major, you couldn't ignore it. Like you really couldn't, like, this is only 1200 words of something, but it was two years, two or three years of her having a realization almost. Like watching this buffoonery, basically. Right. Watching then, this person in a position that doesn't have the qualifications, depending on people lower than him to fulfill his own obligations. Absolutely. Not having Including set her. standards. 
including yeah. her, you, other people in the department, yeah. it's the department head, there's obviously more people that are yeah. dependent. And what it really means for somebody to um, get into position, yeah. but not actually have the qualifications to fulfill that. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and she, she, so I, I have to say, because I think this also goes to the well-meaning white person. Yes. Um, after, after she had like this really aha moment, then she started to help me in like, in numerous ways, <laughs> in numerous ways, introducing me to people in the field um, who I'd never been introduced to, inviting me to write with her helping to read what that like she was overly compensating I thought it was so blatant she was overly compensating <laughs> for this major thing right mm. which is all she could do because she can't go back and you know she can't fire him or do something yeah mm -hmm. yeah but I still think it it points to that well-meaningness of like oh my goodness I want to do something because I didn't mean to do that thing and almost like with me, like you're saying, like everything else was so cerebral, but living it is different. I think it was the same for her. Like she probably read about and understood these concepts, but it wasn't until the two of us were together and she saw it together that she's like, mm -hmm. oh, no, this is how this has impacted someone's life. Yes. Literally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And. I overall want to presence the relatability of that dynamic, the what you've yeah. written, the relatability for white women. Yeah. Okay. And it's such an odd thing because it's a black woman's experience, but I want to <laughs> say that out loud because one of the things I'm learning about like white women play or something like yeah. that um, as a, as kind of like this unconscious cultural um, play yeah. is we recognize when men white men are playing this um, right. power dynamic. And so we right. can very quickly want to jump to the cause of that because that's yep. kind of that white feminist energy. But yep. the intersectionality of realizing, going back to what we had spoken to earlier, people will say things like, we're here for all women. But what right. they really mean is we're here for all white women. And so yeah. how built into the language and how even chicken soup for the soul, even the the even highlighting this piece, how as a white woman in a position of say the directorship or whatever, yeah, it's just, you've pointed out a dynamic that again, white women can jump in on the cause and be like, yeah, yeah they can see themselves in one of the antagonist protagonist right. experience. If that right. makes sense. That makes total sense. Yeah. And that only hit me while listening to you this time <laughs> that didn't hit me when I read it first. Yeah because I also didn't have the background of the public of the publication. Oh yeah. 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 You know, to yeah. kind of see that extra dynamic illuminated because it's really what the white feminist movement is built on is kind of assuming yeah. that it's including everybody, but often does not have a real life experience of how this relates to a black woman's experience. Right. Right. And how it's the same, but it's different, <laughs> but it's different. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, and a lot of exhales. <laughs> a lot of exhales. And I, I, I wanna <laughs> I wanna name the when he comes to you and asks you to um 
basically like, how do I teach this class? So he has to teach a class in British literature. I'm listening to the things you had to study on British literature and thinking to myself, I'm so glad that my university <laughs> pathway did not include that, <laughs> whatever, right? I'm thinking to myself, wow, what did I miss out on? Obviously oh a whole bunch. But not he really. found a way to get through university, as did I, not yeah. taking that, right? But I'm not yeah. in this position of, of running a department at a university, placating yeah. that I know this, this content and yeah. basically asking you in a position of authority, your senior coming to you saying, oh, well, no, how do I teach this? No? Yeah, he's not my senior. So I want to explain the ranking. So we did okay. have a director who's a white guy. And then the white woman was the program director for our program. So I was in the English education program. Okay. And then the guy they hired, so he he's not my superior necessarily. He just has a higher ranking because of how he was hired. So my position initially was temporary, meaning I'm like on a one-year contract. And his was more permanent. But still... To receive, to attain this position, he had to, you know, you have to have a certain skill set, like, <laughs> and they kind of ignored that. But to to answer your question, a lot, it's, it's funny to me because, especially because of my personality. So like, if someone's telling me, retelling this story, I would be like, oh girl, I would have been like, hell no, I'm not telling you um, <laughs> to teach this class. You go figure it out yourself, right? But in that moment, you know, moments are like this. Yes. Right. And so in that moment, again, it was kind of like hearing him saying he's faking it until he made it. All these things are going in my brain. Like, is he really, did they really just ask me? And you have to make a quick decision. And I was like, well, for the greater good, because I don't want the students to suffer because he doesn't know what he's doing. All of that. Very quick. The swirl, the internal swirl. Very quick. (laughs) Yeah. And so then I'm just like, okay, I guess I'll try to teach you how to teach a class in in 30 minutes or less. Uh, thank you for the correction on the, the, st- the structure, because I yeah, don't yeah. understand the university system per se, but yeah. I do understand now. So you're saying a white director, there was this white man director person, mm-hmm. and then the white woman director was the mm-hmm. woman you said started to help you once she realized right. That, right, that's right. who you're referring to, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it was the... the And the white guy who got hired, he's just a professor, just like I was a professor. It's just okay. that he's on you're a tenure in- track. Got yeah. it. So you're both professors. You're both kind of right. in your st- status as professors. Right. But right. The, the, the quality of hire in terms of security and right. stature. All that matters. Those, yeah. yeah. And and it's intricate to a specific university system. It's a language of culture that right. I don't have language to. So I automatically put it in a superior role. But I oh, see yeah, what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. Um, even to have a colleague. So essentially, he was a colleague That's coming what he to is. you. He was essentially a colleague coming to you um, that didn't have the skill set to do what he was hired to do was he was right. getting paid more to do. Getting paid more to right? do. Let's be clear. Yeah. And didn't offer you compensation to say, hey, can you give me the dummy version no. of getting this? He just, and you're pointing out the, the, the challenging moment to moment decision that in these 
interpersonal relationships in my professional experience, do I help this person out or do, yeah. do I just say fuck off? Like, are right. You Cause now I look like the a-hole, right? <laughs> That's right. going to be the story. And, and then, right. And then what comes with that in terms yeah. of all of the um, ways that you have to fit into well-meaning whiteness in an academic right. setting so that right. you don't get all the labels that might come so I'm up. I'm not with like it. the mean black lady, the angry black woman, the whatever. And yeah. Yeah. It's, those are a part of the reasons that it's like, no, just be easier to just help this person. Just out help I, don't, I don't need to yeah. cause a scene. Yada, yada. <laughs> I can only, I'm making this up, but I can imagine. But it's true. That, yeah, the, the it's true. It's true. It, it, and it's those decisions that are all the time. Right. Um, and it's kind of like when we hear about slavery, a lot of black, young black people say, oh, I could have never been a slave. I would have just left and you're like what are you what are you talking about no you just would have been slaving <laughs> you'd have been doing whatever somebody told you and it's kind of how this is it's kind of like you think you're gonna say something different you're just not because you know I want my job and I had worked hard to even get to this that point of it so yeah mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah I hear the term microaggressions as mm -hmm. to like the, the micro things that are spewed outward. And yet what I'm hearing, this is, is like the ways that we micro swallow, you yeah. know, the, the moment to moment things where it's just like, no, nah, let me just do this because right. And then it leads to the later declarations that say, I'm no longer interested in proving myself in white spaces. Cause if you swallow yeah. long enough and you realize, nope, that's not who I am. I'm not willing Absolutely. to bend, to pretzel, to twist and yeah. negotiate myself so that you feel better, that you can handle yeah. yada, yada. So you feel comfortable. Making so you feel comfortable. comfortable. I have to share this. Um, one more thing, the white woman program coordinator, we were having a conversation about someone else. There was another Black faculty who was not tenure track. And I want to say he had kind of like a breakdown is the only way I can say it. And he ended up yelling, you know, you all don't care about um, Black people and you're racist. To <laughs> yes. And we were talking about it. And I just kind of looked at her. And um, I said, well, you guys are kind of racist. And she says, well, how do you think? And I said, well, look at this department. There only, at the time, there was three, including me, Black faculty. And then I was the only tenure track one. Most people were on tenure track if you were white or Asian. And I told her, I said, look at this. I said, you all just happened to have me. You just happened to hire me. You weren't looking for me. And that's a very different kind of a practice, kind of like with this book. It's a different kind of a practice to say we're looking to be more inclusive and we're going to change how we hire people. Even if we ignore hiring, you know, people who don't know anything, who, who aren't, um, I can't think of the word, but you know what I mean. Um, even if we take that out, we're going to change how we hire people so that we can be more inclusive. It's a very different statement than I just happen to have applied for this job and I just happened to have been black and another woman just happened to have died in her her affirmative action position <laughs> so that she can hire me it's like oh. right that's what I'm saying I couldn't have made this mm -hmm. up if I wanted to mm -hmm. right and even through all of that they're just kind of like what do you mean this is racist <laughs> yeah what do you mean 
Uh, yeah. 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 I wanted to presence um, Resma Menicum again in his book, Quaking of America. And he speaks to that. He's like, you can't really have an effective DEI program, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion, mm -hmm. if you're not asking the question. Right. And so whenever he goes in, he talks about asking the question, well, you're diversifying from what? Right. And if a place can't answer that question, if an organization, if a department can't answer the question, diversifying from what? Which he then points out, well, we're diversifying from the assumption that the white body is the standard and supreme body. Absolutely. And and that all the things kind of start from that centered presence of like, right. oh, the standard is whiteness. And so a department like what you're talking about, just blank stares back yeah. because it's kind of like, <laughs> huh? Like they're in the sea of our own whiteness and right. we can't see ourselves. And so we don't, un can't even see like, well, hello, look around. You have three people. Right. That you, you're simply kindly saying, well, look around. Like, yeah. Like, have you noticed? <laughs> like it is racist. Right. It's, it's nice and racist. Right. And I think um, with, you know, well-meaning white people like to just to bring us home too. that's yeah. the thing. Right. Like I said, it's the juxtaposition of the other white people who are right, who are like blatantly racist, who are clearly, you know, like our governor, I would argue, if he's not just power hungry, then what else is going on here other than racism? Um, that's blatant. And when you're the opposite of that, you get to kind of be like, oh, well, I'm not that. <laughs> it's like a fear right. of ignorance. It's just like, it's childlike. Right. And it's, it's, yeah. it, to me, it's, it really represents the, the lack of emotional and, and social development when it comes sure. to race for white people. And yeah. we just haven't been faced with having to develop in certain areas yeah. And so just like this fiend ignorance of like, what do you mean? Right. <laughs> you can't see my face, but it's right. like open mouth. It's, it's like an open mouth and like wide eye. Marionette. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is such a fiend ignorance. And yet it's it actually is. such a true thing. But it's what I'm beginning to feel. And, you know, again, as we're getting towards closing, it's, I'm, I'm feeling the violence of that fiend ignorance, like of what yeah. that really like whoa yeah don't get to just pretend you don't know because it's everywhere yeah and the fact that so much of our own white identities get to is the point yeah and I think once I mean awareness is important right but then I think that's kind of where um some white people are kind of stuck is the awareness so you can be awareness aware of something I mean even as I you know we're all in therapy and we're all dealing with our trauma now <laughs> but yeah <Yep>. so <laughs> right so it's one thing to like be aware of it as you probably know right and it's another thing to then actually put things into practice so that you're not triggered so that you can go home and have a plain conversation with the elders or so that you can do whatever and I feel the same with white people um and racism okay you're aware and I think George Floyd unless you just were a hardcore whatever that kind of awakened something in most white people but then it now I feel like it's stuck on awareness 
just on the awareness pin, but not knowing what to do, like a frozen state. It's like a frozen state of like, what do I do with all of this? Yeah. I see a lot of, I I agree. I see a lot of, of white people in that, um, stuckness of, of awareness, but not necessarily knowing what to do with themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this podcast is really good for that. Um, because also we can't go into hyper practice mode, kind of like what I described with my white female colleague, right? She she became aware and then she wanted to do all of the things for me. And I, I readily received them because I'm like, okay, girl, I'll let you assuage your white guilt on me. <laughs> if that's if this is what it takes. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but I think small things, right? Like we forget that is if we if I keep this comparison with like um dealing with trauma and therapy, we're all in this healing journey, right? And so maybe all these little practices can be supportive of the healing journey that we all need. Yeah. That's right. It really is. It's an embodied practice. That's why I really love the language around somatic abolitionism is that what we're learning to do is we're learning to be abolitionists in the bodies of our own culture. So in your own body experience and how the whole basis of that, of somatic abolitionism is we have to do this within our own bodies. So I have to do that with other white people and black bodies have to do that with black bodies and bodies of culture do that together. And so the, the presencing of what is real in a society that hasn't let us speak or name race properly and kind of pretends to just kind of whitewash it all into a non-meaning everything is equal, equal, right you know, that's been a marketing campaign since integration. Yeah. Everything's equal now. Everything's equal now. And yeah, so if you look yeah. at it as kind of like a commercial campaign, think about the psyches of of the children that have just been indoctrinated with that. It, it is yeah. it's just this unaware, you know, it's awareness is a great place to get. And yet it's so not enough. Now begins the yeah. construction process, right? which is an internal realization that as white folks, we got to do that with each other. We don't get right. to do that with other with black people because we we no. are we are inherently recreating harm and we can't even notice it as harm because right. we're so numbed out. We're so yeah. numbed out of our own humanity. Yeah, like re-traumatizing someone. Yeah. And <laughs> my apologies, you know, because <laughs> you know, I I've seen and witnessed as black people, you have your own adaptation strategies to just make it yeah, to, to deal cope. with it. To cope. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And once again, it's why it's so powerful to come together in Black bodies of culture and do that work of being able to do what you can only do with each other. And and so that you don't have to hold all these unconscious ways of having to be just to be yourself. Yeah, just to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, So look in the show notes, folks, for, you know, Resma Menicum's work. I highly encourage, um, you know, more delving into somatic abolitionism and deconstructing these really false identities that we have had to construct for our own survival in a racially segregated world that, you know, inherently um, elevates the white body as the standard body. And this is kind of the falsity that by talking about it and speaking to everyday occurrences that these things show up as white people, we can drop our niceness and we can start to, to get truthful. Yeah. Yeah. Get honest. Yeah. And I would probably say too, one thing that that 
I keep thinking about the program coordinator. I think what would have been helpful is if she would have just said, how can I help Mm. now? Right. Not to try to do all of the things within her power to help me. It's kind of like rep, like her own, like personal reparations. I just think sometimes we skip the simple part, which is just, how can I, how can I help? Yeah. And not like in a pandering, Mm -hmm. you know, pity type of thing, but like really, right. But maybe that comes after the work, right? I think so, because one can't, if one's not feeling their own humanity, they can't actually yeah. ask a question to receive what you might say. Right, right, right. You know, and so we go yeah. into kind of panic. Like, I feel like it's like from a trauma-informed perspective, it's like um, we either go into flight mode right. or freeze mode, right? Or yeah. fawning, kind of placating. And yeah. I see that That's behavior what that is what you're talking about is, yeah, it's a bit of a, a placating. It's like, let me overcompensate. That could happen in yep. an interpersonal relationship, right? Like we yep. overgive yep. ourselves yep. because we actually are having a very deep insecurity yeah. um, as opposed to kind of fleeing would be yeah. like, let me, let me. Yeah, let's get out of here. Mm-hmm. That's me. <laughs> but it could be a, a form of fleeing in the sense that she's going into hyper speed mode of let me overdo something to be able to flood all the ways that I can help you as if um, that's going to make up for the obvious what's for everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really think now that you put it in that, I think it was more fawning. It was a lot of like, she's because I understand her personality in general um, on a personal level. So I think it was a lot of people pleasing and all of that. So it kind of got rolled into one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there were so many things and I just have to, I, I don't want to like, I don't know what our time is, but, um, but I have to say, it was just so many things. Like she made me an officer as a part of an organization. Um, in addition to introducing me to almost everybody who I didn't know, who was like super top, whatever she would buy me things. It was like a lot. Like, yeah, gifts. that's, yeah, like she I bought see. me a pair of sunglasses and she bought me like a keychain holder and something. Yeah, it was. A, so as I'm saying, yeah, when you're saying that about the response, uh, you think you're absolutely right. It was more like fawning, like, yeah, let me like she didn't know what to do. And so she just did everything based on her own trauma response. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing it, it as it trauma response. Yeah. It's such a fascinating. Um, yeah. Uh, framing, because as white people, if we haven't actually done, uh, you know, what's called like the inner reps, right? It's like reps around having racially charged conversations that we've never had to develop muscles for. Right. That's a part of the privilege of being in a white body is that we can navigate time and space without having to do that. Yeah. And so the fact that we haven't even noticed that we haven't developed muscles, um, that's where that fawn response makes more sense because the more I've learned about complex trauma, having grown up in a spiritual cult, the more I'm able to now see the gravity of like, oh, how I've hid within whiteness as a form of a survival mechanism. You don't know you're doing anything until you realize you're doing it, but that's what you're talking about. You can't, you can't just stop at awareness and be like, damn, I've been (laughs) been hiding out. You know, that's a good awareness, but now comes the actual deconstruction of the challenge of like, whoa, my body goes into fawn response when I'm around a black woman who speaks truthfully about something in moments. So then they go into fawn 
And I go into panic mode as if I have to help and soothe the room and make everybody feel better. And so hearing the ways that's done, buying glasses, you know, becoming, you know, a leader in this other setting. There's so many well-meaning white women out here that I feel like think they're doing the quote right thing. Yeah. to make someone yeah. quote, feel better and don't recognize how that behavior kind of comes with like a coded with Ick. It. and it was just weird just in general it just was weird but I noticed it mm. and I didn't at the time of course I was in a different place and I didn't I noticed it and I thought it was oh this is weird but okay um you know, whatever. Right. I like I like sunglasses. <laughs> so, I'm like, practicing receiving. <laughs> right. Like it's all good. But now, yeah, with some space and time and understanding, right? Yeah. Yeah. I just learned something. Thank you. <laughs> like really. How interesting. And it's yeah. really a, it's why we talk about it, because the more I yeah. learn about complex trauma when the places we're supposed to go for help are the places that we get abused, what happens Mm -hmm. is there ends up becoming this, again, what we talked about in the beginning, the distorted, convoluted, like messiness, like what am I supposed to do with that? There's not a linear answer. And so therefore there's not a linear question. We have to be like, wow, how do we distort our way out of it? Right. Right. It's it's not so simple. It's 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 doing something and feeding yeah. our way into that, you know. Um, yeah. Anyway, my point is, is in the conversation, new things emerge. Absolutely, it's what's yeah. so powerful about this type of a, a platform is we get to pierce our own veils of understanding and and start yeah. being like, wow, so that we get to take up more space. And I want to just kind of go back to that, like you in your own process of of what that means to inhabit space yeah um to no longer prove yourself in white spaces and to have experiences where right now you can relook at something again for the first time yeah yeah and actually have a little bit of compassion too um because I can imagine how unsettling that probably was for her you know what I mean um I so do. have compassion for her and while also, but that, and knowing that that doesn't take away from my experience at the same time. Yeah. And being able to offer what you said, she could have simply just said, what would it mean to support you? What do you need right, right. now? What would that right. look like and feel like? And so as white people, we get to do our own inner processing so that we get to have a simple and truthful, transparent exchange that simply says, what would it feel yeah. like to to yeah. have this repaired? Yeah. Yeah. A much better question, right? Um, yes. But when we are in trauma mode and trauma survival mode, we don't know we're doing that. So it's like, right. we're just in our own survival places. Yeah, she was just know? doing what she always does, I'm <laughs> sure. Yeah, but not, but just in, in with this, just because this was about race, but I'm pretty sure she was doing whatever she was used to doing in her everyday life um and you know that's what we all do so yeah and so again the point that we're prefacing on on this podcast is that's why it's everyday whiteness folks because it's everywhere it seeps (laughs) it's just seeping at the seams and it's so seeping it's everywhere 
And the adaptation strategies are everywhere, both for white and black people and all the shades in between, because Mm -hmm. that's what whiteness forces. And it robs us of our humanity. Like, I really want to get clear that I'm getting better at seeing this has nothing to do with helping black people or brown people or people of culture or people. This is about white people reclaiming our humanity. Right feeling humanity again for the first yeah. time and and that's getting such a good point yeah that's such a good point um because I think that's part of what racism did and um my new thing that I've been processing is how racism a lot of times we think racism just hurt black people and I'm only speaking about black and white people because we are in the United States and it was so socially constructed just to be that right that's but right. But racism has hurt white people too, because like you said, you had to, so even on a basic level, you had to think of black people as not being human. That was part of it. But then you also had to experience some lack of humanity to be able to do that. And that's centuries of not feeling being passed down. That's That's huge. Yeah. It is. It is. And it's a part of, um, the recalling back of our own spirits and our own humanity and, and yeah. a culture that we have to co-create as white people that's not rooted in hate. It's not rooted in otherness. It's right. rooted in the celebration of our own people, yeah. whatever that means. And yeah. we're so unrooted from that earth, the roots tending our own roots, which is why we so easily exploit and extract other bodies of culture because yeah. that's we're, we're extracting joy where we don't have our own um it's i really value you bringing your words and your lens um to to letting all of this emerge it's just been such a beautiful conversation with you thank you Nishan. i appreciate it yeah um any last words that you want to speak to well-meaning white people before we wrap? um no, just process your own shit, I think, is the, <laughs> I think that's the key. <laughs> Might be that's the title it. of this one. Yeah, just do it. Process your own shit. Yeah. It really is. I'm going to just go ahead and highlight this book, folks. It, you've heard me talk about it before, but um, it's called White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better. White Women, get the book. <clears throat> I'm going to be hosting a... Um, uh, book club on this and for me it it has been really excellent to give a framework around a lot of the everyday occurrences that happen um, that we haven't kind of named as the body of culture called white womanness and it's helpful because I'm gonna be like oh look at me white womaning you know <laughs> and and just to be able to categorize it in a way that's not a shaming way but a recognizing it's like any culture you know if you work with yep. a post office there's a culture of the post right. office workers there's a culture of academics and you had to explain right. your language. Right. And we can start to depersonalize. Um, we get to actually uh, take responsibility for the violence that we're causing, that our fiend ignorance mm. causes by just being like, I don't know. Yeah. You know, and it's not okay to not to know in, in this way anymore. Absolutely. So <clears throat> process your own shit. That's one of the basic <laughs> things that the book talks about. Like, white women, get it together already. Like, yeah, just do it. Y'all are, you're, you're, y'all are harming each other, you know, much less right. the overflow that happens to us. Um, yeah. 
And speaking since we brought up and you had specifically brought up an Indian woman, the book is written by an Indian woman and a black woman. And so they speak Mm. specifically to the anti-blackness that Indian people, that all Indian Mm. people get as a socialization strategy of whiteness. And so you talked about that, but they really presence it as a framework and a language to really digest properly. And I found that really helpful. Same thing with Asians, like how the Asians, Asian body of culture or Southeast Asian, as well as um, Mm -hmm. uh, East Asian, that how it's a strategy of whiteness to have them be the assimilated kind of top, top tier. And it's very Brahminical. It's again, very much a caste hierarchy. Um, But this literature just helps folks, you know, we got to have new language to be able to see ourselves properly so that we can call ourselves out and we can not be personalizing so much when we get called out. We can be seeing it for what it is because it's structures of whiteness and white supremacy and uh, dominator culture supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. And dominator culture can show up even when you're in a black body or a brown body. Right. Not about a culture because that dominated culture system is what's running the dynamic. Yeah, running the show. So tell us about your song as we wrap up here. Um, so I think I chose Kanye West Stronger. And um I want to say the hook says something like, and it's pretty popular, like whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Um, which is something that I enjoy about that. And I know it's not very popular to mention Kanye West right now, (laughs) but um, I'm a huge fan of Kanye West, the artist. And I also recognize the nuances of people. So I'm not a fan of who he presents today, but I still like Mm -hmm. his music. Um, And this song is one of my favorites, so. Awesome. Let's let's listen in for copyright purposes. We don't listen to the whole thing, um, but you can follow the link in the podcast show notes for the podcast playlist. So here we go. Thank you for that. Thank you for this lovely conversation. Thank you. And um, just giving us a lens <clears throat> into lived experience of, of, of being an author and a professor, an academic, a human, a Black woman. And <clears throat> I really appreciate the time you've taken. Thank you so much for having me. All right, folks. Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, don't forget to subscribe at whatever podcast uh, stations you are listening to and write us a review. It really does help. Give us a five-star review and share this with someone that you love. The information presented in this podcast are for general educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed are solely the views of the individuals involved. By listening, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. 
Nothing in this podcast is intended to replace the services of a trained therapist, doctor, or health professional, or otherwise to substitute for professional mental health, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Guru Nishan LLC and affiliate organizations shall under no circumstances be liable to any listener of the podcast or viewer for any action or inaction on your part as a result of the content you consume on this podcast or for any adverse reaction, including any emotional distress you experience as a result of consuming this podcast.